All right, good morning, Remnant. How are we doing? Great. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. Um, great to be in God's house this morning. I just had them pass out to you um, some notes that may make you pass out, but they'll make sense pretty soon. In addition to that, I've given you the bookmark that I promised you, um, and there's more of those available if, if you need them. We're in this series called Bible 101, and it's really a series about how we can help people, help ourselves understand how to feed ourselves. And truthfully, uh, most of us, many, have not been taught really how to look at Scripture and how to mine for the deeper truths, and so that's what we're doing. And today is probably the most difficult day we're going to have because this day today is when the work starts. It's when you actually have to put in the work to get to the point of seeing the truths that are there. We're learning how to look at Scripture. Now, the first thing we have to do when we start looking at a passage of Scripture is we have to decide how much we want to bite off at one time, right? I mean, how do you, how do you decide? Do I want to do two verses or two chapters or, or what do I want to study? And one of the things that we do is we need to look at the Scriptures. Like if you're reading through the book of Colossians, you need to figure out where the breaks occur. Where does the writer change topic? Where does the writer begin to end a topic and start something new? And then once we see that, then we can decide how to break it down so that we're studying a consistent thought. For instance, today I've chosen to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 23. So I want to encourage you to get out your Bibles. And there is a Bible in the uh, pew there. And in Colossians um, 1, Colossians is sorted in the Paul letters um, towards the last, oh, 20% of the Bible or so. And Colossians, and it's okay to look at the uh, table of contents and find the page number. That's allowed too. You don't have to know where everything is. But if you look in your Bibles, remember that Paul has just finished praying for those at Colossae. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that if I had one prayer to pray for the rest of my life, for the people I know, it would be that prayer. He's just finished that prayer. And he begins a new thought. And he begins a new paragraph where he says, He is. I'm no longer praying. I'm not talking about praying for you. I'm now talking about who he is. That's a new thought. So we're going to begin there. And if you look down to verse 21, you'll see he says, or in verse uh, yeah, 21, he says, and you are. That's a new thought. They're tied together. So we're going to look at who he is and who we are. And, and just so we see this, we can study just who he is and we can study just who we are at different times, but we need to realize those two things go together. Now that sounds more complicated than it is. Study Bibles often break this down for you by chapter. The next thing I want us to know is that I'm going to show you how to do this, but there's no single way to study Scripture. You have to look at Scripture that's comfortable for you. I'm going to show you how I look at Scripture but I'm not expecting that, oh, it has to be done this way. That's not true. I just want you to see ways that you can begin to dive into Scripture. And I would encourage you while I'm preaching to put the little sheet away and save that for later because it won't make sense until we go through it. Um, but um, I want you to realize that the purpose of this is to slow down and really see what's in the Scriptures. Which brings me to another point. This is Bible study, not Bible reading. And there's a huge difference. Sometimes you just want to pick up the book 
and read the words about God. And that's incredible. Those are times when you're not really trying to process deep truths. You're just trying to read the Bible, connect with God, hear from him, those sorts of things. But we are also called to become disciples and to know the law, know the, know the scriptures, to know what Jesus taught. And so we are also, as disciples of Jesus, instructed to know the word, which means we need to study the word. Like anything that's new to you, it seems harder than it really is. But by having a process, some steps to take, some things to look for, they eventually become second nature as you go through these things. For instance, I find myself now when I read scripture, after every verb <laughs> in my head, I go present tense, past tense, for God so loved, past tense, the world that he gave his only son, past tense, that whoever believes, present tense, in him will not perish, future tense. And I do it naturally without even thinking about it, really, because I've done it so long. And that's part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to pay attention to the things that point us to deeper truths. Today is the work of Bible study. Our goal is to create some notes that allow us to pull things out of text and look at them specifically and study them and learn how they relate. And as we create our notes today, we're going to spend the rest of the week in your private, quiet time with God looking through those lists, looking through those things that repeat, looking through the themes that are there and helping you process the depths and the things that God wants you to see. Now notice that so far I've not suggested that you pick up a commentary, that you look at other sources, that you try to find out what other people have said or what your Bible study notes say. I'm trying to get you to interact with God and hear what the Holy Spirit wants to show you about that passage. And what you're gonna discover is you may study a passage now and the Holy Spirit says, oh, this applies to you at work with this situation. And you may come back to that passage a year from now or three months from now, and it can have a completely different application process, but the truth never changes. If a passage tells you to love the people that you don't want to love, and you read that today, that's one group of people. You come back tomorrow, you may have a whole other group of people. The truth don't change but the application can change. So we're panning for gold. We're looking for the deeper truths and we're using the things that show us how to go deeper. And this process today, you may look at it and go, well, this is too much. And maybe it is for you, that's okay. Take what you can out of it and apply it. I promise you, you'll begin to see deeper truths in the word of God. Now you may wonder why I picked the book of Colossians for this study. It's not the best known book. It's just one of the 66 books in the Bible. It's not the shortest. It's not the longest. Doesn't have a ton of famous verses. Doesn't contain many well-known stories. The reason I chose the book is simply this. This book reminds me of the motherland. Yes, the great state of Texas. That's why I picked it. It's the great state of Texas. And we... When I see the book of Colossians, the first thing that pops in my mind is, this is all about Texas. That's not the only reason, but it is important. You see, I'm from the great state of Texas, and I've been looking forward to this sermon. You may be wondering what Colossians 1, 15 through 23 has to do with Texas. And I'm glad you asked. I really am. Thank you for asking. The Alamo. Mission San Antonio de Valero, the Alamo. 
Long before they converted it to a car rental company, it was a day in history, March the 6th, 1836. And it wasn't just a movie, it was actually a day in history. Brave Texans defending the mission, surrounded by the Mexican army. James Bowie, no, no relation to David. James Bowie was there. And he had an impressive knife. If you've never seen it, impressive knife. Sam Houston, Davy Crockett. I'm the number one fan of the man from Tennessee. He came down and helped the people from Texas. His hat was a fashion faux pas, but he was cool. He came down and fought. Anyway, 115 Texans went up against hundreds of Mexicans and, and they, over 400 died, 115 Texans died. And yes, I know we lost. The battle was a colossal failure from the Texas standpoint. That's not the point. There was a moment in the days preceding the battle. The Alamo is surrounded and there's two options for those that are there. You can live or you can die. You can live or you can die. Every man had a decision to make. They could live for themselves or die for a cause they believed in. Colonel William Travis took his sword and he drew a line in the sand. It's a beautiful moment. He drew a line in the sand. And those on one side of the line died for their cause. Others chose to live for themselves. Can you imagine the weight of that decision? That crystal clear moment in your life when you realize that you have to surrender everything for something bigger than yourself. Everything you have, including your life, for a cause that will live on far longer than you will and will impact more people than you ever will. I hope you can imagine it because that's exactly what Jesus asks of his followers. Die to yourself so I can live in you. The book of Colossians and this passage that we're looking at today, in particular, is the line of truth in the Bible. It stands as one of the best books in the Bible in plainly describing the supremacy and majesty of Jesus Christ. The passage we look at today is the core passage of the entire book. It spells out in clear language who Jesus is. If you have any questions about who Jesus is, if you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, if you're trying to decide where you stand on that line, this passage is written for you. In fact, this passage is at the very core of what Christianity is all about. Now remember, the passage preceding this is a passage where Paul is praying for those at Colossae. It's this prayer I said I would pray for everyone if God only allowed me to pray one more prayer the rest of my life every day. But if someone asks me who Jesus is and why he's my Lord and Savior, and I only had one passage to explain it, it would be this one. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. And if I had one passage to describe me and who I am, I would pick Colossians 1, 21 through 23. This passage explains what separates us as believers in Jesus Christ from every other religion on the planet. Paul is essentially taking his words and he's drawing a line in the sand. This is who Jesus is. It never changes. It hasn't changed for 2,000 years. This is who he is. 
You can't move the line. You can't change the line. He is who he is. The only thing you can decide is where you stand in relation to that truth. The response to the words in our passage today separate those who are saved, those who will spend eternity with the Father in heaven, and those who will go to hell. Not my words, God's. And those who are not, or or those in this passage, Paul is going to paint a picture of Jesus. A picture that is higher and loftier than most of us ever even consider. He makes claims that go beyond any easy understanding of Christ, and they challenge us to make a stand for Christ that go way beyond some simple decision. This is the Alamo passage of the Bible. Paul is asking us to cross the line. Stand with Jesus. Die to yourself so you can live with us for eternity. Make your life matter for something more important than you. And we're surrounded not with the Mexican army, but with false teaching. We must know where the line of truth is, and we have to know which side we're standing on. Turn with me to Colossians 1.15. That's why I couldn't wait to preach this sermon. This is your day to make sure you know where you stand. You can reject who Jesus is, but you can't change who he is. This passage is the Alamo for believers. 2,000 years ago, a line was drawn in the sand by Jesus himself. He said, this is who I am. This is who you are. This is the line of faith. Where do you stand? Like those in the Alamo in 1836, we too are surrounded by an enemy. The decision we choose may cost us our lives, but Paul draws a line in the sand. He says who Jesus is, who we are, and the decision that stands before each of us. So let's dive in and read it. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross." And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we're going to go through this passage today pretty slowly. And we're going to apply what we've been learning. And I gave you my notes from this passage, and I'll be doing that through the rest of the series, that show you how I approach every passage that we teach. Don't freak out. We're going to go through it. For those online, it'll be available in the sermon notes at the the Remnant website. The first thing I do when I look at a passage is I try to remind myself of how this passage fits in in the Bible, in the letter. Okay, why is this passage where it is? 
Remember that letters have a flow to them. You don't pick up random thoughts in a letter. You start at the beginning. You read all the way through. So when I pick a passage, I want to remind myself, where does this fit into what I've already been taught? Is this a new thought? Is it building on one before? What immediately preceded what I'm reading? What did the writer just finish talking about? Now, we talked about a few weeks ago the passage before this. It's an incredible prayer that Paul had for those at Colossae, people he'd never met. Next, I read the passage at least seven times. Let me repeat that. I read the passage at least seven times. Seven times. Slowly, carefully, thoughtfully, over and over. You will begin to see things you didn't see on the first way through. And then I ask myself, how does this passage make me feel? What emotion am I feeling after reading this seven times? For me, this passage brings up emotion of wonder and worship and gratitude and brokenness and feeling unworthy of what Jesus has done for me. This passage says this is who Jesus is. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's above all things. Everything holds together in him. And this is who you were. And this is who you are now. When I read that, I just go, oh my God, you saved me. And I'm so unworthy. Now it helps me first to then look at things that repeat. Now if you'll notice, we're going to go down your bookmark. Okay, on the bookmark, you'll see that as we look at things, we look for things that repeat. I'm going to show you why in a minute. I take the scripture without any markings on it, and, and I try to put things in buckets. Whether you think something compares or someone else thinks it contrasts is not the point. The point is, is that you slow down and think about it. The entire point of this entire process is to slow us down, to begin to look at the text. The point is to see what you see and not think about it. Remember, when we're in this first see, the, the content, our job, it, we're like detectives at a crime scene. We're not trying to put it together. We're trying to make sure we see everything that's there. So today, we're simply looking for the things that are there. There's no wrong answers unless you just blow through the text and don't think about it. The goal is to abide, to spend enough time to allow the Holy Spirit to say, hey, do you see that? Do you see that list? Do you know why they're in that order? Have you ever thought about why that, or notice what's not in that list? As you slow down, you begin to hear the Spirit teach you. It always helps me to look over the passage globally, but we're just looking. We're looking at content. First thing I look for are words that repeat. Remember that noticing words that repeat tell you what the writer thought was the most important thing. Why? Because they didn't have text. They had to remember. Some of them were illiterate. They learned through stories. That's why Jesus taught in parables. That's why Jesus used the things that they were seeing around them to explain the kingdom of God. Our job as we read scripture is to begin to put together and look for the things that the author thought was most important. Now remember, I told you a couple weeks ago, in Hebrew particularly, and in Greek at some point, they did not have the best, better, good. They don't have words like that. They didn't have, so the way that they would emphasize something's important is they would repeat it. So when you look at any passage, if something is repeated, even if it's only repeated once, that's something to pay attention to. So when we look at this passage, and I know that you probably can't, maybe you can read that, that's good for you. 
The first thing I see in this passage is the very first two words, He is. And that's repeated in Scripture. He is. And this is exactly what I do. I just mark up what's repeated. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to analyze it. Just look for things that are repeated. Okay, you can see from this, just doing this, this passage is about who Jesus is. He is, right? He is. Now notice something. There's a verb in there. It's present tense. One of the most validating things in Scripture that tell me that this book was written by the Holy Spirit is you can't find one time when Jesus is talked about and the verb tense is wrong. Let me give you an example. My dad passed away a couple years ago. When I speak of him now, I speak of him in the past tense. My dad did this. My dad was this, right? When my dad was alive, I spoke to him in the present tense. There is no doubt that those who wrote the books of the Bible knew that Jesus was alive in the present tense. Because every time they refer to him, it's present tense. Every time they refer to salvation and what he did, it's past tense and it's never wrong. That's incredible. I know that my father, my dad is alive with Jesus today, but I don't refer to him as alive. Every time they talked about Jesus, he's alive. He is. Next thing I see is the idea of by or through him seems to repeat throughout this passage. By him, through him, for him, in him, in him, through him. So we're seeing in this passage, just by looking at what repeats, who he is, and now these verses tell us what he does. See that? By him, this happens. Through him, this happens. In him, this happens. So this, just by looking at what repeats, we know that in this text, they're going to tell us who he is, and then they're going to tell us the things that he does. Something else repeats. Firstborn. In this passage, oh, I'm sorry, created repeats. All of creation, created, created, created. This passage is going to talk about creation. It's going to talk about what he did, where he stands in relation to that. So we begin to see that the things the author thinks are important are he is, what he does, creation, and then let's go to the next one. All things. All things. Notice that this is repeated. All things, all things, all things. In everything, all things. This writer wants you to know that there's nothing left out of this topic. Everything is involved here. The next one. Reconcile. He is going to take everything... He is, he does, he takes everything, and there's going to be reconciliation. That means there's been something wrong, and he's to fix it. Okay, let's go to the next one. Is there a next one? Okay, this is all of them. And they're marked in your handout. Now, you may look at that and go, whoa, what is that? Notice firstborn is repeated. So just by looking at the things that are repeated, our minds start thinking. Do you see how that works? He is, he does, he reconciles. He's firstborn in everything. This passage is about everything. These are just the things we see repeating in this passage. Next, we're going to look for things that compare. 
Are there things in this passage that compare him to something else? Is there anything in this passage that says, well, he's like this, or, or he's sort of like this, or uh, he's as this? Do you see that anywhere in this passage? Take a look. Take your time. He's like a deer that pants for water. Is that in this passage? No. No comparison in this passage. What does that tell you? There's no comparison of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this passage that says he's like anything because he is. See, just by looking at these things, you begin to notice stuff. Now, wait a minute. He, there's nothing to compare him to. This passage is not about he's like this. This passage is about he is. There's no debate. There's no, nothing we can use to compare to him makes sense to us because he is who he is. And he's the only thing that is who he is. That makes sense. So sometimes something not being present speaks as loudly about something that is present. In this passage, this is all about who he is, not what he's like. Paul is not telling us what he's like. No wavering, no comparison. He is. It's a line in the sand. Paul's leaving no room for doubt or for debate. This is who he is. Take it or leave it. But I also see in this passage a metaphor. I always think metaphor tells me to meditate. It's there to meditate. So it's really a metaphor, if that's a word. A comparison that allows us to meditate. To, to spend time, remember I told you that most of Bible study is not reading, it's reflecting. It's a mental image. He's the image of the invisible God. That's interesting. An image of something invisible. I need to think about that a little bit. I can't just read through that. I've got to come back to this. This could be 30 minutes of my week. What does it mean he's the image of the invisible God? We see contrasts. He is, and then if you look down at the bottom, you are. He's contrasting those things. He's going to spend the first part of this passage talking about who he is. He's going to spend the last part of this passage talking about who you and I are. That's a contrast. He is, you are. He is, you are. There's also another contrast, visible and invisible. He's going to talk about the image of the invisible God. Another contrast in this passage is he talks about peace, but it comes from blood. Peace and blood, what a contrast. When you see blood, you don't think peace, right? And yet somehow blood is going to bring peace. These are contrasts, things that you want to come, they're being looked at. We also have once alienated and hostile and now blameless and above reproach. Those are contrasts. Two different places, two different things. We see him as the head of the body and the head of the church, a contrast. We also see a contrast, and he creates all things, and he reconciles all things. Contrast. By paying attention to the contrast, we begin to see the sort of the themes of this passage. We're slowing down. We're beginning to look at the passage. It's starting to make sense to us. He is, 
We are, we were alienated, now we're not, we're above reproach. He's the head of the church, he's the head of the church. He creates all things, he reconciles all things, including me. He's the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from death. Now along the way, you're going to see some words where you're going to go, I think I might need to dive into that word a little more. What does firstborn mean? Was Jesus born? I thought he always was. What does that firstborn mean? That, that's not what I thought it meant. You see, Jesus is the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from death. I better know what firstborn means. And so you're right off to the side. Word study, firstborn. I need to dig. Next, we're going to look for things that connect. Do you see a so that or a, uh, a statement of things that connect? That in everything, he might be preeminent. That in everything, okay? That's a purpose statement. It's something that connects. Now, here's what's weird about that verse. What word in that verse seems weird to you? We just spent the entire passage, he is, he is, he is, and now there's a he might be. What does that word might mean? That in everything, he might be preeminent. Does that mean maybe he's not in everything? We just read about everything. I need to do a word study on that word might because the entire passage hinges on it. If he may not be, then this whole thing makes no sense. The next thing we're going to look at is prepositions. Now, I'm not suggesting that you spend tons and tons of time looking at everything and getting it right. This is not a math problem. It's just slowing you down. Okay? Tons of prepositions in this passage. By him, for him, through him. You read those passages and you just say, oh, okay, there's a lot of those prepositions in this thing. A lot of this is about what he does. Let me ask you the next one. Do you see any question marks in this passage? Remember I told you question marks are gold. You see any question marks? You can answer, it's okay. No, there's no question mark. Why? Because there's no question. Again, the absence of something can be just as important as the presence of something. Paul's not asking questions here. There's no room for questions. He's stating facts. This is who he is. Next thing we look at is means. How does this stuff happen? Is somebody else doing this? Is Jesus doing this? In this passage, everything is about what Jesus does. By him, through him, in him. This passage is all about Jesus. It's all about what he does. We don't read anything, almost anything, about what we're supposed to do. How about conditions and consequences? We're just working down the bookmark. You see any conditions and consequences? A condition is if this, then that. The easiest way to look for conditions is look for an if. So as you read this, you're looking for ifs. Well, there's an if. If indeed you continue in the faith. Wait a minute. Does that mean I can lose my faith? Is this works-based? I thought we were saved through faith. What does this mean? If indeed you continue in the faith. Okay, word study. I need to look at that. You see how this works? It's not complicated. It just points you to slow down and think about what you're reading. You're not trying to figure it out yet. You're just noticing it. Do you see any lists in this passage? Remember, a list can be one or two things, six or eight things. 
usually connected by words like and or separated by commas as you look through. Let's just go through some lists. Lists are absolute, other than repeats, lists are critical in Scripture. Okay? Because here's what you're going to do in almost every passage. You're going to look at what repeats, you're going to look at the lists, and then you're going to look and see how they relate to each other. Okay? All things created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. That's a list. All things are created. And as you look at that, remember that in Jewish writing, the first thing is the most important. All things in heaven are created by Jesus. Let that process for a minute. He was not only in the beginning when the earth was created, he was God. He's, he created all things, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions. You may ask yourself, what's the difference between a throne and a dominion? Rulers, authorities, everything is created by him. That's a list. Another list that we see is Jesus is. One, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is head of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent in everything. You might notice there's seven of them. Usually in biblical writing, when you're talking about God, the number of seven or three is perfect. They think of things like that. We don't, they do. So he is. If somebody asks me, who is Jesus? I got a list. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's before all things. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and he's preeminent in everything. That's who Jesus is. He is. Next thing, next list I notice is Jesus does. All things created, all things created through him, all things created for him. In him, all things hold together. He reconciles all things. He makes peace by the blood of the cross. That's what Jesus does. Okay, you see how just breaking it down into lists help you begin to see things in the scripture that you might have blown through if you just read through it. Firstborn of all creation and firstborn of the dead. That's interesting. Again, what does firstborn mean? How does he fill that role? Not trying to figure it out yet, just noticing what you want to study. You were alienated and hostile, doing evil deeds. Alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Who are you? I was alienated, I was hostile, I was doing evil deeds. Who's Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Who am I? I am alienated, hostile, and doing evil deeds. That's who I was. Also notice that that list is past tense. The next list is, okay, well, if that's who I was, who am I now? You are reconciled in his body of flesh by death, holy and blameless and above reproach. That's who you are. If you're a follower in Jesus, that's who you are. You want to know where you changed? You went from who you were to who you are. You want to know who did that? Jesus Christ. The lists allow you to begin to break down. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he does. Here's who I was. Here's who I am. Here's who did it. Continue in the faith. Stable, steadfast, and not shifting from hope. Okay, what am I commanded to do? Continue in the faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from hope. 
Another list. The gospel is proclaimed in all creation, and Paul is a minister. Those are two things we're told about the gospel. So there's a lot of lists. We don't try to figure them out. We don't necessarily try to put them all together. Although as we put the list together, all of a sudden we're going to have some aha moments. The Holy Spirit's going to begin to show us what's actually in the text. But ask yourself, why are there so many lists in this passage? We don't see this many lists in most passages. Why so many lists, Paul? What are you doing? Well, he's stating facts. He's not asking for opinion. He's not giving opinions. He's stating facts. Facts come in lists. Okay, now let's look at what's emphasized. Verb tenses. He is is always present tense. Said that a minute ago. It's one of the validating parts of Scripture. The writers of the New Testament had absolutely no hint of debate that he is alive. Not just because they saw him resurrected, but they couldn't refer to him any other way. When you encounter Jesus Christ personally, he is for the rest of your life, not he was. He's alive now. He's alive today. I spoke to him this morning. He is. I didn't think it was possible. I thought it was nuts. When I was away from God, I really thought, you guys are nuts if you think you talk to Jesus. You're out of your mind. And then all of a sudden, it was like, well, wait a minute. I'm having a conversation with God. He is. Notice that some things are past tense and some are present. He was the firstborn of all creation, past tense. In him, all things hold together, present tense. He's holding together all things right now. The very fact that we are even here in this moment, or you're in the chair, is because Jesus is holding everything together. If he decided not to, we wouldn't. He holds everything together right now. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell, past tense. All the fullness has been given to Jesus, past tense. There's no more fullness to give. There's nothing else to give him. He is fully God, fully man, fully died, fully resurrection. He is, this is who he is now. Take it or leave it. There's no debate about it. That's what the passage is telling you. We were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds, past tense. He has now reconciled, past tense. Jesus' work for you is done in order to present you future tense on judgment day. You see how the verb tenses help you walk through the process. I was alienated. Jesus died on the cross and resurrected. Through faith, I believe, and he promises me on judgment day, he'll step in and tell the Father that he's already taken the wrath for me. Future tense. The gospel has been proclaimed, past tense. What does that tell you? This is really important. In the scriptures, just like Jesus is always referred to as present tense, the gospel is almost always, particularly after the book of Acts, where it's the only time it's really mentioned, forward, past tense. Why is that important? There's no more gospel coming. It's been fully revealed. There's no other and this. The good news of Jesus and your efforts. The good news of Jesus and being a good person. The good news of Jesus and donating enough money to a good cause. There's nothing to add to it. The gospel is done. The good news of Jesus Christ 
died, resurrected, coming back in judgment. It's done. When Jesus said it's finished, that's what he meant. It's done. Nothing to add to it. There's no one coming later who has a new revelation. There's no new age believers who now see things differently and all of a sudden they have this new enlightenment. None of that's happening. The gospel is complete and done. It's past tense. Do you see any commands here? Well, there's a hint that we should continue in faith, but it's not a straight command. So we just go through the passages and we note the verbs. What about a purpose statement? Remember I told you that purpose statements are always important. When the writer tells you, this is why I just said that, that's really important. He has reconciled by his death in order to, that's your purpose statement, so that, in order to, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. That's what this passage is about. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. Why am I telling you this? Because he has reconciled past tense in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you future or present tense, blameless and above reproach before him. Notice something else in that. This is incredible. We sin against God. We separate ourselves against God. A righteous, just God has to bring punishment. There's no option. He can't be just if he ignores what we've done. At some point, the Father has to pour out his just wrath, his just on the sins of the world. And he basically says, look, I got an idea. You can't survive. Your punishment is death. I'll die for you. I'll take your place. So think about this. You have offended me. Your sins have separated you from me. You can't do a thing about it. So I'm coming down there. It's like my mom, he said, I'm coming down there. Okay, well, he's coming down. He's going to take our place. He's going to pay the price. It's going to be done, completely done. We won't be able to add to it. We won't be able to work our way into heaven. We won't be able to impress our way into heaven. There's no curve. You either believe or you don't. It's that simple. Notice that Jesus came to earth. He paid the price for us. He overcame death. He resurrected. He's alive. He's coming back. And one day, don't miss this, we're going to be presented to him. Present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why is it before him and not the Father? Well, when Jesus died and resurrected, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God has already poured out his wrath. He's done. Father, he's done. his wrath has been poured out. Jesus took it all. We will, all of us, present ourselves to the very one who died for us. He will decide. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. No one comes to the Father except through me. He will decide your future. You will either look at him as your Savior and Lord, or you will look at him and say, you know what, what you did on the cross, I knew about it, but it didn't matter to me. I don't care. And if we choose to live separate from him on earth, we'll live separate from him in heaven. It's that simple. Purpose statement. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, he's paid the price for you. He's cashed in your debt. He's paid for it. He's reconciled. It's done. Past tense. So that on judgment day, he can present you 
blameless in his righteousness to himself. It's incredible when you think about it. Do you see any exaggerations here? Remember, we're just working our way down the list. Do you see anything exaggerated in this text? Let me ask you this question. Do you expect to? No. Not based on what we've been reading. This is a a purpose. Who is he? There's no exaggeration here. This passage has been about facts. You can't exaggerate Jesus. He comes already exaggerated. He's already the best, biggest, greatest. Your mind can't comprehend him. There are key words that you need to understand. Maybe you need to find out what they meant in Greek and Hebrew. We pointed out several of them, preeminent, those sorts of things. I'll look at that later. So we've looked at the passage. Notice that while we're categorizing, processing, and thinking, we're slowing down and we're learning at every step. We're not simply making a list to make a list. We're making a list to pull that out of the text and look at it and to bring another list and then see how those two relate and then to come over here and say, okay, what about this text? Look at this list. Why is, look, this list is like that list or this list answers that list. Our minds start running. We've slowed down and we've given the Holy Spirit time to show us what's here. Just for instance, we're going to spend probably 45 minutes to an hour looking at this passage today and next week I'm going to teach on what it means. Okay. You will not look at this passage again different, the same way as you did when I first read it today. You, you slowed down. You've seen things. And we haven't even touched yet what it meant to the first century, what it means to us, and how to apply it to our lives. We're just noticing what's there. Now, once we're convinced that we have noticed all that there is to notice, the next thing I do is I read it again seven times. Why do I do this? because I'm getting ready to move to context. I'm getting ready to start asking myself, what did this mean to the first century audience? And I wanna make sure that the Holy Spirit has shown me all that I'm to see, that I haven't missed anything. I wanna take a mental picture of the passage. I wanna feel what this passage is. This is an unwavering, clear, non-negotiable explanation of who Jesus is, what Jesus does, what Jesus will do, and what it means to me. It's just crystal clear. I'm not going to try to interpret the list. I just want to make sure I've noticed all of them. I'm soon going to leave the scene and move on to context. I'm like a, a crime scene group, and we're getting ready to leave. Whatever we didn't notice isn't going to get noticed. I can come back, of course, but, but for the most part, I want to make sure I've seen everything the Spirit wants to show me. So I read the passage again seven times. Now, all this takes about, so far it's been less than an hour, and this is a huge passage. This might be all you can do in one day. You may only take the first paragraph. You may only look at, I'm just going to look at lists and repeats today. However you want to break it up, it doesn't matter. Just slow down. At this point, you might be praying that the Holy Spirit will show you everything you need to see in this passage right now. Not everything you need to see because this passage is deeper than you'll ever dive into. No matter how how deep you dive, it goes deeper. Initially, you might break into just smaller pieces. You may spend your entire study time one day just writing down the list or looking at one list. Remember, I told you that I'm more concerned that you slow down and get everything the Holy Spirit wants to show you in one passage or one verse than reading through the Bible in a year. 
We're not reading, we're studying, right? Maybe you only focus on your emotions. Why does this make me feel that way? The text determines your learning schedule. So for instance, I'm gonna ask you when we're done here today to take this text and study it for a week, the things that we've listed. You may decide I need to block some time and meditate on the metaphors, the image of the invisible God. I may meditate only on the comparisons in this passage, who he is and who I was. I may meditate on how I can obtain peace through the blood of the cross. How does that work? What does that mean? Through blood of the cross, I find peace. Why did God choose that for his son? I might meditate on what it means to be the firstborn. I may need to study that a little bit more. Do a word study on what the firstborn means because firstborn, it does mean the first one born, but in Hebrew scripture, what it really means is the one of of most value, the one of most preeminence, the most important one, that's firstborn. Maybe I'll meditate on what it means that he can reconcile me so I can stand blameless before him. Maybe that's the image that he wants you to spend time thinking about. That when you stand on judgment day, he'll declare to you, well done. Blameless. He certifies his work in me. I told you that in order to find the gold, you got to spend time, more time reflecting than you do reading. It's just that simple. The list, the repeats, all these things are just specks of gold. They, they just show you where to slow down and notice things. The gold is found in the reflection. The gold is found in the meditation. The gold is found when you slow down and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. God calls it abiding. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you blow through scriptures apart from him, you're going to look at this book and go, why am I reading this? We're going to keep studying this passage next week. So here's your assignment. I want you to take the notes that I provided or make your own. And I want you to spend every day studying them perhaps meditating on the list, doing the things we talked about. Look at each verb tense. Look at everything that repeats. What I do is I take the sheet that I do, and for some reason I've always started on the left and worked my way around, left and down. And you'll see on that sheet that I gave out that um, the first thing I ask myself is, how does this fit into what I've read before? How do I feel after reading it? And then I work my way through what we talked about. And then in the middle, I have a place for thoughts, which are just right now, what am I thinking about? And what I do when I study scripture, particularly if I'm going to preach it, is I just keep going counterclockwise around that list over and over and over. Looking at the list, looking at the things, asking God to show me. Because here's the thing. This passage is huge. And I only have, I know you guys don't believe this, but I have to figure out how to fit everything into an hour or less. Okay? The Holy Spirit, all of it's true. But when I come to preach a sermon, my question for God is, okay, of all those truths, what does our church need to hear today? Okay, because I can't preach all of it. It's too deep. It's too wonderful. It's too incredible. What do we need to hear today? And then I may come back three months, six months, a year later, and there's something else he wants us to hear from this passage today. You should be asking the same question. Why is this passage in front of me today? Not how do I teach it? Why am I looking at this passage? Because nothing's by accident. How many times have you picked up a passage and all of a sudden you're like, oh my, this is exactly what I'm going through. This is exactly what I needed to hear. Once you're tired of looking at this thing, you're about where you need to be. 
And then you can begin to ask this Holy Spirit the next question. What did this mean to them? What did this passage mean to the people at Colossae? Next week, I'll teach you the meaning of this passage. We'll be able to compare notes. If you're going to tell someone next week what this passage is all about, what would you tell them? So next week, I'm going to share with you what I believe God wants us to focus on related to this particular passage in this particular moment at this particular church. So this is Paul's Alamo moment. The line in the sand, he says you have to make sure you know where you stand. The line's not going to move. There's no curve. He's not going to change. He is past tense. He's done it. It's all past tense. The line is done. The only question is, in the moment, what do you do? You have to know where you stand, and you have to remind yourself of where you stand. That's what communion's all about. Reminding ourselves of where we stand. In a moment, uh, as Lamar comes up and plays, uh, I'm going to ask you to come down front and social distance and do all those things and pick up a communion cup. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this moment's for you. If you're not a believer in Christ, it is perfectly fine. Stay where you are, have a seat, process in your mind what we've been talking about. But these cups have a little thing on the top. There's a little piece of bread and underneath there's some juice. What I'm going to ask you to do is after you pick that up, I want you to pray, go back to your seat, come to the altar, do whatever you want to do, and just reaffirm once again to Jesus Christ that you know where you stand in that line. You know who he is. You know what he did. You know what he does. You know who you were. You know who you are now. And when your heart's ready, just take the elements. On the night before Jesus was crucified, yeah, he was with his disciples. Um, and he did something that really was part of the Passover dinner, but it hadn't been done in this way. He, he lifted up the bread and he said, this bread is my body. They had no idea what he was talking about. This bread is my body. And he passed it around, share in my body. And then he took the, the wine and he passed it around. He said, this, this is my blood. And they didn't know what he was talking about. They had no idea. And then he said something very interesting. He said, every time you do this, you declare my death and resurrection until I return. He told them, this reflects my death and my resurrection. You see, you don't know what tomorrow holds, but I do. And there's going to be a day, this is going to make total sense to you. You're going to understand that his body was broken for you, that he sacrificed himself for you. And the bread reminds you that Jesus went to the cross and paid the price for you. And that you're saved for only one reason. He poured out his blood. And because of that, you're saved. And because of that, he can reconcile you because we know who he is. We know what he did. We know who we were. We know who we can become. And all we have to do is believe in faith. So every time we take communion, we're saying, look, I know there's a line in the sand and I know where it is. And more importantly, I know where I stand. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your word is clear. I thank you that you almost have to force us to slow down and notice what's in your word. This is just one passage of 66 books. It's incredible how deep it goes. There's no doubt when you begin to look at this book that it's written by God. But Jesus, you are the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word died on a cross and resurrected. And the Word's coming back to judge. 
and we have to know where we stand. So God, as we take communion today, would you just remind us in our heart of hearts where we stand? That in our Alamo moment with you, our lives are yours to use however you want. God, for those that don't know you, I pray that you begin a journey of moving their hearts. Open their eyes, allow them to see what only you can allow them to see. Help all of us break down our pride and our arrogance and our self-sufficiency and surrender to the only one who can truly save us. We love you. Move our hearts as we take communion, as we declare to you your death and resurrection until you return. And we ask it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 